Julian Fleischer is a singer, writer, producer, and performer who lives in New York. His songwriting credits include the music for the plays Almost Maine and the performers on Broadway. Fleischer is also the composer and lyricist for the new musical Measure of Success alongside librettist Kirsten Gunther. As a professional writer, Fleischer has authored multiple books on grammar and self-improvement for Random House. Julian Fleischer, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. We're at the Five Senses Festival, and you just performed a double act with song and food. That's a good way of putting it, a double act. Gabrielle Hamilton, the great New York chef, and I agreed to try something together, which would be a, a presentation of sorts, somewhere between a presentation and a performance, where we shared our love of and curiosity about each other's work in a way that would illustrate how they overlap. She's obviously a very prominent and revered chef. Her restaurant, Prune, is legendary in New York, and, and her cooking and her approach to cooking is really the subject of a lot of reverence from the world of, of food. Yeah. She's like Meryl Streep of yeah. cooking. But we agreed to work on a project where we try to understand our own work through the filter of each other's work. And this was an idea that popped into my head one day when she and I were having drinks and laughing and talking. I forget the song that was mm -hmm. playing over the speakers, but she said, oh, I love the bridge of this song. And I said, you know, back in the day of Tin Pan Alley, which was the golden era of American popular songwriting, they called the bridge of a song the release because that was the section of the song that went in a different direction from where the rest of the song was going. So the first couple of verses would create a repetitive sense of tension, and then the bridge would take you somewhere new, and that's why they called it a release. She just loved that. So that just sort of started a conversation between the two of us about the secrets of each other's work. What are the, the basic underpinnings and the structures behind songs that might resemble making food. And the more we talked, the more we realized there were all these analogs between our two crafts. I don't think we really managed to get to that last night the way that I would have hoped. Well, I would say she was doing more cooking, but you, you, you plunged the chicken in and you were talking and it's hard to get off. The problem yeah. is we really didn't know how it was going to go until uh -huh. we tried it. It's uh -huh. not the sort of thing we could really rehearse. Given our schedules and the nature of the work, we just needed to just throw ourselves into it. Yeah, but you kind of knew where you were aiming. Yeah, we're just trying to figure out if this is something we can pursue, uh -huh. if it's a project that might actually have a life as a polished and meaningful performance for people. Well, I spoke to several people afterwards and they agreed that all concerts should end with like chicken soup or, <laughs> yeah. or something nourishing like that. Because people experience the world in different ways. They love music, they love food, they often love both or whatever, but it, it nourishes them in two levels. And maybe like a concert is one thing, but that encourages people to talk. So I think that engaging imagination and uh, conversation is really great. I'm glad to hear you say that. It's very gratifying. I mean, last night was a real mess, but one of the upsides of getting older is I don't care anymore about whether it's a mess. What I care about is what inside of that mess was meaningful, what inside of that mess was charming and got the message across. I think for her, it was a lot more mortifying than it was for me because she's a lovely yeah. singer, but yeah. she's not a performer. She could be, but yeah. she just isn't. I mean, outside of the performance that she gives yeah. as a chef, which is a different version of the same thing. So it was wonderful to see her get up there and actually sing the song. I sing all the time, it's easy for me. So there are some imbalances built into the presentation that we need to figure out. For her, it's a much bigger demonstration of vulnerability to get up and sing a song in front of that audience than it is for me to make chicken soup. Yeah. We did something like this once before on my variety show that I host at WNYC. It was 15 minutes long and I had to make an omelet. And in many ways I feel like the omelet exercise was better than the soup exercise. 
was smaller in scale, fewer steps, it happens more quickly. The flipping of the omelet is the dramatic equivalent to her singing the song for me. Can I make the omelet flip? But the thing with the omelet is hard to serve it to many people. Of course. We would have to figure <laughs> something else along those lines if we were to serve food every time. Maybe a quiche. But that gesture would give me a hoop uh -huh. to jump through in the same way that she had one to jump through to. I would just say from the feedback, I think it was satisfying. And it goes to some of the things you were talking about. There's two things. One thing is when you've been doing something a long time, you see the flaws. It can be kind of compelling. What you perceive as the flaws is actually the humanness. I completely agree with you. Yeah. And as I just said, getting older, I look forward to the flaws. I just felt like her skin is not thick like mine when it yeah. comes to these things. So after the performance, I felt like I needed to mother her a little bit and, sure. and assure her that she had not made a fool of herself, that what had happened was exactly what was supposed to happen at this stage, yeah. that there's the real beauty in all of that mess. Mm -hmm and in the tenuousness and the vulnerability, the fear. It's actually very meaningful, I think, for people to see that stuff. I've said to her many times, all we have to do is just talk to each other. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's the craft you're talking about, but for the thrill of the audience right. is the kind of voyeurism. So we know that's not exactly how you cook in your kitchen, but at the same time, it has that atmosphere. I'm, yeah. I'm very, very pleased to hear you say that because it was messy and raw. I said to Itamar, who runs the festival, yes. it's very meaningful to have spaces like this for people like me and Gabrielle where we can try stuff out in process. You know, That's learn. what this Five Senses is about. Certainly in the daytime stuff. Tonight's concert I hope will be a little oh, bit yeah. more polished. <laughs> Although I am once again challenged to do something here that I haven't done before, which is perform with another singer, Cece White, who's a fabulous singer, but we've never worked together. The horn section is made up of guys I've never met. So I'm literally gonna leave you and go to a rehearsal with a bunch of people I've never worked with before and try to make something happen that will be meaningful for the audience. But you're used to improvisation because improvisation is something that you do and you're riffing on. You, you spoke about how you try to make the familiar new in different right. ways and how even without having performed with these musicians, you have this Sense. Talk about that sense in the room. Like you just, you, you, it's the same song that you do Rubber I will Duck? Survive. No, Rubber Duck. Was oh, Rubber Duck. <laughs> so like... Yeah, she needed me to sing a song <laughs> so that she could do some cooking. This is one of those things we hadn't really accounted for when yeah. we talked about it in advance. Like, what will it actually be like when we're doing it, as opposed uh -huh. to what do we imagine? And I recently came across Rubber Ducky for some reason, and I was like, wow, that is a great song. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows it. Yeah. It's a classic from the Muppets from like 1971. So as I often do, I just whipped out my guitar and mm -hmm. found the chords and mm -hmm. decided to learn how to play it. But if you slow this down and really investigate the lyrics, it's kind of sexy. Is it Burton Ernie? Yeah, there's, there's rumors. Yeah. <laughs> Except Ernie sang that song alone in the oh. bathtub. Or else it could be seen to be a song about oh. masturbation. Oh, okay, so I didn't know all the things. Rubber ducky, joy of joys, when I squeeze you, you make noise. Rubber ducky, I'm terribly fond of you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so if that's what I like, recontextualizing songs like that is really all that I do that makes me happy. When I came up as a jazz singer, I had one real hero who was Mel Torme. And he's part of a group of a handful of singers that I worship who are all now mm -hmm. deceased, including Sammy Davis Jr., Ella Fitzgerald. But Torme, more than any other singer I know, was really interested in arranging. Mm -hmm. Some of his rearrangements of songs were just thrilling. And at some point I decided, oh, that's what I want to do with my life, which is a terrible idea. Why? You're supposed to always make something completely new. Doing singing is what I mean. I wouldn't encourage anybody to do it. 
And yet music was around you, so it seems inevitable? Maybe. I wanted to be an actor, but I didn't have a thick enough skin for that. There's vulnerability in all the artistic professions, right? A musician? No, I can't even hold a note, but I'm an artist, I'm a painter. Are you performing here? Are no, you we were supposed here? to be projecting elements of it, but we're mainly here gathering for do these interviews. We become artworks. I mean, I do your oh, portrait, cool. actually, you're gifted that, and that goes in the traveling exhibition. Then we invite creative responses from the stu students and other people. Okay. So I kind of understand it, but I don't know that thing about going on stage, you know, like so much as you, the courage it involves. Or, but yeah. why did you say it was a horrible idea? Oh, just because, you know, I don't want to get into a long self-pitying. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. it's it's very hard to break nationally so that, you know, we were actually having this conversation last night at the, the house where we're staying, me and the band, that I was saying, you know, for me, success would be being able to show up for a gig and knowing the room will be full. Yes. That's all. Big, uh -huh. big room, little room, as long as it's full. Like, the biggest struggle for me is getting you know, an audience to show up. Okay. And did you think about gimmicks and things like that? Absolutely. It's yeah. all I ever do. All right. What's it's the next gimmick? <laughs> well, I mean, for me, special guests are yeah. a reliable yeah. thing that I do, you know, like prevailing upon my friends who are famous yes. to join me at gigs so that I can maybe attract a few more viewers and also give them a chance to mm -hmm. show off in a, often in a vein that people don't know them for. Other gimmicks, like... My big band is not really a gimmick, it's more like a brand, I guess. Mm -hmm. Something that people identify me with. Mm -hmm. My arrangements, really it's my arrangements. They know that they're going to hear songs that they know and love, but recontextualized and reinterpreted in a way that's both fun and, I hope, smart. And I think for young musicians or people starting out, or for anyone, it's that side of the showmanship. Mm -hmm. And you're, of course, a great performer, but the visuals of it become something. Absolutely. Is that something that you relish? I love it. Last year, I've partnered with this wonderful clothing designer mm -hmm. in New York. Her name is Elise Fife, and she makes men's clothing. She and I have collaborated well. Pair of sparkly suits that I really, 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 really love, mm -hmm. that are very flashy and fun, and are, are interpretations of very conservative silhouettes, but done in very flashy material. I love that the juxtaposition of something very simple and old-fashioned with something very flashy and new. So the visuals are very, very important to me, and always have been. And I know the audiences expect that. They want something special. This isn't, you know, emo rock and roll where you show up in jeans and a ripped T-shirt. Yes. Is this experience, as I say, and everyone experiences the world we're here at Five Senses, the different senses, some are stronger and different people. And I like that you work with a fashion designer because we should feel music as we walk. So if we can think about music, we can feel jazzy to have a spirit, you know, that's really nice. And uh, I know you performed at the, the first Five Senses Festival. Are you doing other collaborations? This is sort of it for the moment. I mean, yes. we've talked briefly about a few things over the years, but this is the only thing that's really materialized. And I think this is good for us. This is a good collaboration because I like performing live. Yes. And they need live performers. So your father is also a musician. Yes. My father is a genius. I'm just talented. And that's fine. I'm totally cool with it. It's just the way that it is. My father was playing Brahms concertos with the New York Philharmonic when he was nine. So that's a different thing from what I do. Music was all around you, but was it something that you were like invited into or it was compulsory? Good question. It was not compulsory. There was no, you have to learn how to play the piano in my house. 
My okay. parents weren't really pushy that way. I'll tell you a quick story. I met with Itamar, who runs this festival, maybe a year ago. I said to him, I need some help. I need to figure out what to do with my life. So we sat down at a restaurant, and I took out a napkin and a pen, and we started to talk about what mattered to me and what I thought would be an interesting thing to pursue, what would be meaningful not just to me, but maybe to other people. Over the years, I've had careers as an actor. I've had a career as a writer. I wrote books for many, many years. I've been a singer, a songwriter, a record producer, a radio host. When I looked at the whole drawing on the napkin, and I tried to ask myself, what unifies all of these things? And it came down to songs. I was just like, wow, songs really are at the heart of all of these pursuits. Something about songs really matters to me. In the same way that some people believe in Jesus Christ and they can't really get through the day without connecting with that figure. That's how I am about songs. They are the fuel for me. Arts are a faith. They're spiritual and relating back to the immediacy of song and the immediacy of food. It has a fire, the heat or the coolness. You know it. You taste yes. it. And recently I've started a little tradition in my own life of, of ending every one of my gigs mm -hmm. except the one last night yeah. with a sing-along yes. because audiences desperately want to sing with you. They really do. And, and when voices are, ra are raised together, it's very powerful and meaningful. It's that release you're talking about as well. Yes, it is. When you feel your throat vibrating in consort with someone else's, it's why people go to church. I've always said, I, I was raised Jewish, although I'm not religious, but Jewish services are very, very boring. And most of the time you're mouthing words in a language you don't even understand, Hebrew. And then you go to a black church. They get into <laughs> it. <laughs> and you hear the, that singing and you're like, this is why they believe in God. Listen to this. It's completely transporting. I thought, boy, if we had this kind of stuff when I was growing up, I'd probably be religious too. I don't know. That's a hard boulder to push. <laughs> There's got to be a way to figure that out. So I think that's what I'm trying to do. For years I've been working at WNYC at the radio station talking about songs. Mm -hmm. Not just playing them, but talking about why they matter, why they excite us. I really truly believe that it's hard to get through life without it. Not music in general, but songs specifically. There's something about songs, short little nuggets of information that really draw people together, give us meaning, give us a spine, some kind of like psychic spine to get through our lives. I don't know. I'll figure it out one day. No, I think it's true. I think that some people aren't as musical, but even they can't help it. Your body starts to move, you know, it's like involuntary. So in your analysis of songs, you have this kind of filtering process. Can you describe it a little more? The songs that you love, the first songs, the ones that I want to do that, I want to be in this vein rather mm -hmm. than this stuff. That's a good question. One of my problems is that I, I have very eclectic tastes. And when you decide to sing jazz, quote unquote, yeah. jazz, which I'm not really strictly speaking a jazz singer, you're sort of automatically relegated to a, a canon of music that you're expected to sing. And I very badly wanted to get out of that. I wanted to be a jazz singer, but I wanted to sing Joni Mitchell. And you brought in I Will Survive. So these are not standards. Not standards, but I uh -huh. think should be. Yeah. I actually think I Will Survive is a great American standard. Yeah. We just don't think of it that way because it came up through the disco era, which is largely an era that was dismissed as frivolous. But some of my favorite songs come from disco. And I Will Survive, once again, if you slow it down and really think about it, it's a very sophisticated song. The lyrics are wonderful. Yeah, we've... If Johnny Mercer had written those lyrics, I don't think anybody would be sitting there going like, oh, well, lesser Johnny Mercer lyrics. They're yeah. really well written, and the melody yeah. is very moving. 
That's in very interesting how you can slow down or speed something up, another thing you riffed on there, and make us pay attention. And I wish I had that ability to hear, because sometimes when something has perf been performed so many times, but say by one artist, it's printed on our mind. Often it should be. Yeah. There are certain songs out in the world that are basically done. Mm -hmm. Aretha Franklin's recording of Respect, which was yeah. an Otis Redding song, that was recorded several times before she got her hands on it. Yeah. Then she not only recorded the song, but she wrote those famous backup vocals too. Part of Aretha Franklin's insane genius was her backup vocals. That that's all her. Right. So there's an instance of a song that it's gonna be hard to 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 top that. It doesn't seem to require a rethinking. <laughs> you tried a bit last night with a, a pious rendition of... The right keyhole. Yeah, it was interesting. There's things that are quite soulful. You want to take the soul out of them. <laughs> exactly. And that song's already funny. It's body. So you're putting a hat on a hat. It really does matter which songs you choose to do those with. Like for tonight, I'm going to do this version of Hotel California that I mash up with Grieg's Piano Concerto. Oh. Do you know that one? Okay, I'm trying to imagine how that would... Okay. You'd recognize the opening, it's very yeah. famous. It goes, bum, ba ba bum, yes, yes. da 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 bum, ba da bum, ba Actually, my father has a beautiful recording of it. Okay. But it turns out that it's actually very similar, the chord changes underneath the Grieg Piano Concerto and the chord changes underneath Hotel California are very similar. And the quality of the music is very spooky uh -huh. and very full of dread and mystery. The Greek really sets up Hotel California very well if you slow down Hotel California mm -hmm. and then really, really punch up the lyrics for people. I can say, I think without sounding immodest, real success with that in my live performances because people are like, oh man, that's a really cool song. Yeah. And it's almost like you're adding a layer of respect to it by saying, I can do it again. This song can take a beating and it's still going to come out great. You're also doing something very interesting. You're adding your imagination, your innovation to that, but it kind of goes back to how you like to draw in your audience to do a sing-along at the end. That it's so much more gratifying that they make a leap of their imagination and they kind of feel like yes. that moment. You're right, yes, yeah. I think you're right. That's nice to hear. And I, oh, I can start to understand musical thinking or not, maybe not musical theory or whatever, but it's mysterious for a lot of people, right? Yeah. Like, oh, that's how they play with things. It's also interesting because a song like Hotel California, everybody knows it and they don't yeah. know why. It's weird. I would not assume that. I remember when I moved to Paris and I moved in and then someone told me, you know, someone just died at Hotel California. It just sticks in my memory. And there's something about being able to sing a song that you don't know you know. That's yes. why I often when I talk about songs, I say great songs contain some kind of DNA that gets passed on from generations before us and through us into the next generation that tell us like a little bit about who we are. Like our actual DNA tells us who we are, tells us that we're going to have brown hair, we're going to have, you know, pink skin or whatever it is. This is what our DNA determines we will be like. But there's other kinds of DNA. There's cultural DNA. There's spiritual DNA. There's psychic DNA. And I think songs contain that DNA that tell us where we've been and where we're going. Does that make sense? Of course. So if you look at the American Songbook, if you look at those 
points, those key songs, that you can rewrite the history. Yeah. Or it can be on a personal note, uh, it can be their biography, right. like that. Exactly. People say, oh, that's our song. Remember that? That was yes. the night we met. Uh -huh. And, you know, interesting books have been, like, woven together around songs. Like, so it's an interesting thing, because it really is a cultural moment, and we can shape stories around them. Yes, I, I think it's important to note that there's not a single meaningful event in any of our lives that isn't marked by a song. My name is Jackie Lamb, and I am an associate environmental podcast producer and interviewer at The Creative Process. I am also a rising senior at American University studying film and media arts. In my studies, I have grown to appreciate how different art forms, such as cooking, can be interwoven with performance narratives to connect with an audience. Whether it be song, dance, or play, performances typically only require audiences to use their senses of hearing and seeing. But by incorporating cooking, performers like Julian create an immersive experience for their audience. As Mia pointed out, this type of performance also engages audiences by encouraging them to use their own imagination and personal connection to the various tastes and smells of what's being prepared on stage. For me, one example is the aroma of banana bread, which conjures up memories of baking with my mom. That tropical scent of banana mixed with the sweet taste of slightly melted chocolate chips brings me back to baking my first loaf of banana bread at 11 years old. I had previously never excelled at making food, whether it was baking or cooking, so this experience greatly improved my self-esteem. The next day, I brought my homemade banana bread to a friend's birthday party, where I felt a certain sense of pride at being able to contribute to a meal. It was something that I could say I had made with my own two hands. And because this was a Taylor Swift-themed birthday party, songs from her Speak Now album were played on a loop. Nowadays, whenever I hear songs from that album, I'm reminded of the time when I not only persevered, but succeeded in baking my first loaf of banana bread. Now, back to the interview. I think it's very true. It's something that people, you know, they might not intellectualize it or theorize it, because I've done a lot of interviews with less popular forms of writing, like with novelists. And, you know, they're sad. They wish they had that immediate connection. So the audiences are becoming smaller for their massive books. I'm supposed to be asking. No, no, no. I'm actually fascinated to hear what you're saying. I think Gabrielle says she's going to try to get here. Last night on stage, you know, she does have a big advantage because food is required for staying alive. Certainly songs are not required for staying alive, but they're required for wanting to be alive. Yeah, but can you imagine a world without music? Of course not. I mean, even now we hear music, but if we weren't hearing music in the background, we were hearing sound. A whole people working in ambient music now, yeah. you know? We hear birds, we can't help it. There are people who say things like, oh, I'm not really into music. And I say back, like, so are you also not into gravity or oxygen or any of the other things that keep us alive, that are the other forces of nature? You don't get to decide about music yeah. any more than you get to decide about light. It's a natural beauty thing, but there might be some people who think, who cares? I just want function. Right. So when you say so many people are inspired by music, and so I found it you know, interesting, and then I hadn't thought about so much, but sometimes doing interviews with directors or showrunners, and uh, you know, one told me, uh, 
maybe you know him because he's in New York, the showrunner of uh, Ray Donovan, and he says, oh, I learned everything about writing and showrunning, and that's from music, you know? Because when you, uh, say when you watch films or television or theater or whatever, you're sensitive to it. But a lot of us, we're just taking it in and we don't think about that. It's storytelling, really, Uh and that's what I think is one of the basic things that matches up a meal with a song, is that there's ultimately some kind of story being told. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that's why she and I talked about, or want to talk more about, like the sections, like appetizer, you know, main course, dessert, opening verse, chorus, refrain, you know, like these things. And there are callbacks, you know, a great cook can, in dessert, refer back to what happened at the opening meal. They always, not always, but often, like, will put a visual representation on the plate of something that's in the meal, Mm -hmm. it's in the food. There may be like a a lemon wedge next to your chicken that was cooked with lemon what I, is what I'm saying. So there are ways that chefs and songwriters are doing very similar things. They're yes. using layers mm-hmm. and cross sections and structure to deepen the storytelling and to make it more resonant and matter more and stay with you longer after it's over. Yes, and then the presentation as you think about beyond the plate but the, the, the atmosphere, the right. staging. Right, that's why she wanted, she insisted as a matter of fact that we have a fire pit burning because oh, yes. she wanted that in. smoke smell. Oh yeah, because people commented about, I remember, saying, oh, that's nice, yeah. So these are the touches that we don't think about. And, and you don't want them to think about it. You know, as a showbiz person, you want it to appear sort of effortless and just to have happened. But there's a, so much hard work that goes, the rehearsal, you know, the mm-hmm. detail. I think too about seasoning and over putting too many elements in something or, you know, the restraint. And I think about with music, because so much is subtext or a kind of compression, so in terms of songwriting. Yes. Uh, that's something I don't quite understand. I mean, I imagine like so much thought is put into a song that we feel it and we replay it a lot. You said it's like a collective memory. There's a lot of effort that goes into making something seem effortless. Yeah. I have an interview show, much like yours, where I talk to songwriters and, well, not to anybody about songs that they love, but I had a wonderful interview with Sheldon Harnick. Oh, yes, I do know. I haven't interviewed him, but yes. Uh, he's old. He's yeah. up there now. He wrote the lyrics for Fiddler on the Roof. Right. And yeah. of course, She Loves Me, that won a Pulitzer Prize before Fiddler. And he talked to me about how hard he works to shave down lyrics until they scan exactly right so that the words sound like they would be tumbling off of your lips anyway, to sound natural, in other words. The proof is in the pudding because the songs from Fiddler on the Roof are timeless yeah globally compelling I don't know what it would be like to be Jewish frankly without Fiddler on the Roof and those songs that are so beautifully crafted the lyrics the way they scan against the rhythm of the note and then on the other side of the coin there's someone like Stevie Wonder for example who ignores all that Mm -hmm. (laughs) he'll shove any lyric into any kind of like corner if he likes the melody yeah so it's strange because some people are more focused on the language of it and some people they have this sense that the language doesn't matter, the tone matters. Right. Well, it dep- also, lyricists will tell you the lyrics matter more, and then m- melodists will tell you, no, the melody matters more. And then there's those people who manage to do it all. I guess it depends on the, the song, really, isn't it? And also the, who's interpreting it. Because I think about great lyrics, and I think everyone, like, you know, like Leonard Cohen. Oh, clearly the melody matters, but clearly without those words. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or yeah. Joni, who's my favorite of all. I think Stevie Wonder's a really interesting case, too, because he did everything. He wrote the music, he wrote the words, and then he, on the recordings that we all know so well, he played most of the instruments, sort of like Prince. And you can take a song like, I wish, I wish those days were 
come back once more. With the horn section mm-hmm. blowing in between, you know yeah, the song. I do know, yeah. I mean, there's nobody on the planet Earth who doesn't know that song. Mm-hmm. But the lyrics scan very strangely. He says, I wish those days uh, would uh, come back once more. Why did those days uh, ever have to go? And like yeah. that splitting up of ever into two weird yeah. parts like that is not what most teachers of songwriters would cite as like yeah. good lyrics writing because yeah. it doesn't sound like the word when you speak it. Yes. It doesn't follow the rhythm of a normal speech. But what are you going to do? Yeah. It's Stevie Wonder and it's yeah. like the most enjoyable song ever recorded. So there are moments when you don't care. Yeah, of course. And because of the strength of the interpreter just makes it all make sense. Their life comes through their voice. You're exactly right. It's life-giving. We know, I think talking about Joni Mitchell, and I love, well, both sides now, but, you know, Dave Van Ronk's interpretation of that, mm-hmm. which is, like, that's the other side of it. And yeah. It's not, like, the age she wrote when she was, like, 23. Or, well, or yeah. her version in, from the 90s when she did it with Vince Mendoza and then the London Symphony Orchestra, which is yeah. so devastating. I do it. I've been finishing my gigs with it for years. I won't tonight because it's too hard for a band that doesn't know it, but I do a bassy version of it, like a oh, big okay. band version. Right. I look like from both sides. It's a intentional misreading of sure. the song. It's intentional. It's supposed to be a little bit funny, but also once again to say like this song is so great uh-huh. that you can basically do anything you want to it and it will hold up if you're doing it honestly. Yes. It actually seems a song a little bit about songwriting or kind of like or song interpretation as you're talking about it. The one side. Then you like let's spin it. Let's see this. Yeah. From um, let's le- exactly yeah. like let's see what what else is in here. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that to every song, obviously. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's also a sign of well, of greatness sometimes that it has the other things to unfold. Absolutely. It's like a good movie. You can go back and watch a great movie many, many times and you get something new every time or, or read a great book and you get something new every time. Mm-hmm. Great, great songs. They continue to deliver something every time, which is why we all get together and listen to them a thousand times. Right. You know? And I'm wondering now, because of obvious live performance and the improvisation, but, you know, digital technology and how do you feel about how that's changing music or how people's expectations, audiences, how do you work within it and what are the limitations? I have an answer to that. I haven't really thought about it. Oh, I'm sorry. Is it a frivolous question? <laughs> no, no, it's not frivolous. <laughs> I'm just trying to think, like, it's not really where my head's at. I mean, sure. digital technology is a tool. Either it's a tool you want to use or it isn't. I mean, I'm not sure yeah. I know. What I've noticed, like in my last trip to New York, and I was riding around in uh, Ubers a lot, and I'm just thinking audiences oh. change, their ears change, the uh, auto tune, yes, yes, and yes, the. Yes, I see. And I've heard a lot of music that sounds like machines singing to machines, but like a younger generation thinks, wow, I love it, machine music. Yeah, I mean, I'm always wary of being like the old man shaking his fist at youngsters. I have a show that I do with my yeah. band called 1975, because in my humble estimation, that is the greatest year in American popular music. The old masters were still sort of in the mix, the Cole Porters, the Ellingtons, the Gershwins. Their songs were still a really important part of popular music. They weren't museum pieces yet, but also you still, you had the rise of singer-songwriters, the James Taylors and Joni Mitchells and Carly Simons and Joan Armatradings. And then you had funk, R&B, <laughs> and soul, you know, at, at the height of its powers, you know, you had Aretha and, and Stevie Wonder and Earth, Wind and & Fire and Otis Redding and, and George Benson. So you had this flowering of all these thrilling, exciting 
really personal kinds of music and none of them ever used digital technology and I think the fact that we still come back to that year so often mm -hmm. on the radio and in our lives that era of music is so vital and so potent and so long-lasting is exhibit a in why machines talking to machines will never really give us what we got back then so and I don't want to be like sometimes machines talking to machines as you put it so eloquently is cool yeah, there's people who use it in ways that you can't tell so much, you know? But it doesn't feed the soul. I think it's like food. You don't want to eat fake food. You don't want to eat rubber chicken or something like that. It just feels like they probably can make a, an imitation, but... Yeah, you're very right. I like that. That's a really good analogy. You've given us a lot to think about, a lot to digest if I want to like really murder the metaphors. And I just like, you know, this is an educational initiative. And so I, I really like that show and I, we look forward to further iterations. And well, thank but you I, very much. I, I think it's really lovely to bring us into this open kitchen concert space for, for young students of people who love music or young musicians, composers, you know, like in this age, we think about the future, we talk about digital technology, you know, what is the arts, what is music given you? You know, why is it important to this human endeavor? Life. I mean, Shakespeare said our music is the food of love. It's just, I, it's given me meaning. I don't really know. I mean, it's like asking me, what does air give me? Oxygen. I mean, what does, it's as elemental as anything I can think of in my life personally. It's the only thing that really gets me through the day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure this is helpful to you. This sounds like a fortune cookie. No, it's no, it's important because that's why you spend the life through the, 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 the difficult times and everything. That's why you do it. You wouldn't, if it wasn't your life itself. But. I said to the woman who runs WNYC when I was trying to convince her to let me do mm -hmm. the work there that I wanted to do, yeah. I said to her, I'm not saying that we can save the Great American Songbook. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that the Great American Songbook can save us. And she was like, okay, you got the job. <laughs> and I, I'm sort of known around there as like the true believer. Like, I'm the weird little evangelist. Like, we need to sing more songs. Yeah. If we all just sang songs, everything would be better. The kind of violence in society or the hate? Or the division, the yeah. sense of pulling apart. Songs have a natural power to pull people together. Mm -hmm. And that's subversive and it's revolutionary and it's very required right now when so many leaders are exciting power to pull us together so I do think that songs can save us if we sing them yeah. well then that, that's an excellent note for more education in music and the arts from a young age or just bring it into our daily life I think it's I said in that yeah. same conversation when she was worried about whether or not we could afford to do the project and I said you know whenever the right wants to cut money from education they always start with the arts they always start with music because it's light, it's not really important. But they're smart. The right is always smart to cut music because that's where the soul lives. And so when you cut people's access to music off, you cut off the access they have to their souls. And that's what they need. What the right needs to succeed is soulless soldiers. Yeah. So I argued we have an obligation to present this music. You know, it's not a luxury. That's why I said last night, it's not the icing on the cake, it's the cake.
It's sweet of you to call them insights. For me, they're literally just questions I'm trying to answer. I don't have any insights. I'm just following a hunch. It's that simple, and I mean this very literally. I'm yeah. following a hunch, and I don't know why I have it. <laughs> I just feel like if I keep banging away at this question, maybe I'll learn something about why. Yeah. Well, I think that that's something, you know, like you were talking about, that musicians have a lot of faith in each other and this unspoken language. So you don't think of it as an insight, all this knowledge you've built up through a lifetime, but it actually really bypasses language often, you know. Mm. So I will call them insights or... <laughs> you can call them what knowledge. you want. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Julian Fleischer, for sharing your world of music, your insights into what nourishes us, the importance of the arts for our collective memory and uh, humanity. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Mia, thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> the Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Jackie Lamb. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.